So in Hawaii, where I now live, very happily, we do a lot of something we call talk story. And whenever you get together with someone, you talk story. And people talk story a lot. It's amazing how much talk story happens. And I wanted to talk story a little bit tonight as I begin the talk, partly because it's fun, partly because it actually fits with what I'm saying. So as I was sitting here, I realized that 29 years ago, John and Gil and I and Robert Hall started our teacher training with Jack Cornfield. We were a very intimate little group and it went on for four years. Um, They went through menopause with me. They were really good about it. And um, we practiced a lot together and, you know, began to teach together. And I think it was in 1992 when um, Jack had said, you know, you three ought to teach a retreat together. So we found a little tiny retreat center, Chikoji, down in the Los Altos Hills, and we taught our first retreat together there. And the next year we moved to a place called Vajrapani, which is a Tibetan center and Uh, back up in Boulder Creek, up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And for 17 years, we taught a retreat. There are a few of you, I think, uh, who are here, were at that retreat at one time or another. And then it finally developed that Spirit Rock wanted us to not be teaching there. We had this beautiful campus by then. In the beginning, we didn't. And so then that, this became the not Vajrapani retreat (laughs) that happened here. Um, And now it's a little thinned out. We're not teaching it every year, but I think we've, we think we're going to do it again in 2020. So, you know, that it just keeps going, doesn't it? And what's interesting is that somehow in all of this, we've kept our direction going, you know for this particular retreat. It's been great fun. I can't think of anyone else I'd rather teach with. And of course, in recent years, it's been a great joy to add both Heather and Rebecca to the team. So we're, we're a good team. We do well together, I think. So So I wanted to talk about that. How, how do we continue, how do you continue what you began here this week or what you intensified here this week. Some of you, it's a refresher for some of you. And at this point, we've had six full days of retreat. I think that's right. And, you know, we've sat with all of you in in our practice discussions. And I know it hasn't been easy, probably hasn't been easy for anybody all of the time. Some people have had some few moments of ease. And of course, there have been, for most of us, Here and there, you know, that utterly exquisite moment when the turkeys do their turkey thing or, or, you know, you see the vultures circling up overhead or uh, the deer come by. We've had a couple of really lovely male, young male deer hanging out down where the teachers live. And it's so, it's so wonderful, those, those moments. And of course, it's such a gift to be so present here. Last the other night when we were being silent at the beginning of Gil's talk, remember? 
and we heard the frogs and I thought, I think he's not going to talk. He's just going to let the frogs give the Dharma talk, which would have been fine, although it certainly was a really good talk, so I'm glad he didn't do it. So you've made it. Here we all are. Pretty much everybody is here. We had a couple of people who got sick and needed to leave. But, you know, everybody who began has ended. And, and, you know, we congratulate you at the end of the first day, but I think we really ought to congratulate you now. You know, you've really done it. And you've been, you've come here. You know, we've talked about here so much, this retreat, over and over and over again. And that this practice of being utterly present in this very simple way with our bodies and our hearts and our minds. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. Very simple. Moment after moment, just being the way it is. So we began by being present with the breath and relaxing into it. And you know what? That's going to continue. Because as long as you're alive, you breathe, right? When you stop breathing, you don't have to worry about meditating anymore. So you you get to be with the breath and it will stay there. It's there for the watching. And that's a really wonderful thing at any moment any moment. You know, all of a sudden the freeway comes to a complete halt, you're really stuck, your breath is still there, you know. So we can always kind of touch in with our breath. It's no small thing. And this breath, this breath is astounding. You know, if you've ever been present when a baby is born and there's that first breath, oh, so amazing. So amazing, all of a sudden this being is alive. And if you've been present with someone who's dying and you're there for the last breath, it's like, what just happened? Such a quantum moment, you know, when, when, when that happens. And so it's, this breath is so profound and special. And we've been present to the body and to its solidity and to its warmth and its aches and its itches and its restlessness. And how many times do you think you've come back? You know, any, I don't have, I've never even tried to figure what a retreat of coming back is. But it's a lot of coming back, you know, over and over and over again. And so we learn how to be here. But the interesting question is, so what's motivating this? You know, you've done all this work, all this being present. You know, what, what? is inspiring you because you wouldn't do it if you didn't have some kind of inspiration, you know. And we've all, at least I have, run into people who say, you're going to go for a week or two or a month or however long it is and you're not going to talk and you're going to be quiet and you're going to just look at other people's socks. I mean, really, what is this? It sounds, it sounds so crazy. So Why? So some of you have an answer, probably, even as I say that. You know why you came, you know why you signed up. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning. And some of you have started your practice a long, long time ago, probably well before even Gil and John and I came together. And some of you started it relatively recently. So I really want to look tonight at intention. 
as we leave the retreat. Because, you know, this is the intention for the next stage of the retreat. The retreat isn't really going to be over tomorrow. The next piece of the retreat, the next weeks, are some of the most important part of what you have done here. And so you really need to have a sense of of intention of what are you practicing for? What is this going to do in your life? So I have a couple of obituaries I want to read tonight, sort of to set the theme, one at the beginning and one at the end. This is is called Obituary. It's written by a man whose name is Tim Hicks, and that's important, you'll see right now. So Tim Hicks died died expectedly at some moment in the future. Not yet determined, but certain. He died at the center of the universe, surrounded by everyone and everything. He died as he lived, apologetic for his inadequacies, proud of his uncertainties, and very appreciative of the opportunity. The cause of death was living worn out before his time by time, unfortunately. There was so much more he wished to do. Among his accomplishments were surviving and occasional laughter, over serious as he was. He built several gardens and was on his way to mastering happiness, if only he'd had a bit more time. He is survived by the rest of the world that follows him as reluctantly as he followed the others. and by those few who taught him patiently about the meaning of love, his children especially, who knew him well and partially, and his dear sweet partners who chose to travel with him for better and for worse. He was a slow student, but diligent and well-meaning. Services will be held somewhere. In lieu of flowers, memorial thoughts of wonder may be offered up. Hmm. So, for the rest of the talk, I want to weave into it uh, a story. I like to do that with my talks. And I want to weave in the story of a man who um, used to work here. And a man who was uh, loved by many. All of us up here knew him fairly well. And he was an inspiring practitioner. His name was Steve Young. And he died very suddenly and very unexpectedly almost five years ago, five years ago this summer. And I have to say, you know, even as I start to talk about him five years later, I can still feel the tears, you know, just right right there. He was such a good guy. And I met him at what was then Vipassana Santa Cruz. It's now Insight Santa Cruz. And he showed up one day. I don't know, this is probably more like about because he was here for a while, maybe eight, nine, ten years ago. And he wanted to practice. He was so excited. He was coming to practice. It was just the best thing that had happened to him. And then he heard that I had a group for people who have been practicing a while longer. I called it my committed students group. He really wanted to be in that group. He was a beginner. I said, well, no, it's not for beginners. And he just pushed, you know. I really want, please, 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 can I be in it? I really want to be in it. I really want to be in it. Well, when someone pushes like that, you know, it's usually a good idea to listen. So 
I said, yes, you know. And so he started coming. He had a really rough life. He'd been in recovery. He was, he'd been sober for a while. Uh, he was a surfer and done lots and lots of different things, been in and out of relationships. And he started. And um, he was amazing. He was, he was so passionate about practice. And so everyone else in the committed students group, you know, they were all jaded. <laughs> they, were, they were so inspired by him. It didn't matter that he was in some ways not as practiced because of his great love for the Dharma. So he began because he had some sense, as all of us do, that he needed to go in some different direction in his life. So that's the thing. What is this mind that wants to wake up? What is the mind that wants to wake up? What are the questions, actually, that move us in the direction of practice? So there's a teaching about four particular mind states that are helpful as we enter or continue the practice. And it's called the four thoughts which change the mind. The four thoughts which change the mind. And not only do they change the mind, but these are thoughts that as they come in again and again and again, as we move on the path of practice, they help us to keep that sense of direction. So these are the preciousness and the rarity of a human life with the leisure and opportunity for practice, the absolute inevitability of death, the awesome power of our actions, even the smallest ones, and the pervasive presence of suffering. So some of you, you know, you may even be familiar with the teaching, most of us, I think, are familiar with these thoughts because they occur for all of us in our minds and hearts. And you may be even thinking, yeah, that's why I'm here. You know, that's pretty much sums it up, those four thoughts. They're really kind of the earmarks of human existence. And they, I think they really underlie almost all forms of spiritual practice, no matter what it is that you are doing. And they're, you know, they are they kind of speak of the places where we are challenged in our lives. So, the preciousness of human life with the leisure and opportunity for practice. So when things are rare, we often consider them to be precious, right? So precious gems and that kind of thing are things that you don't just, they're not just the rocks that you find out around on the ground. And whatever else you might say about human beings, the truth of it is we are way outnumbered. We are so outnumbered. The classic example for the Buddha's time about this was that on all of the oceans of the world, out there in this vast, vast ocean, there is floating, I think of it as a life preserver. A little life preserver, you know, this big around, like this. One life preserver. In all of those oceans of the world, there is a blind sea turtle. Your chances of a human incarnation are about as good as that sea turtle coming right up through the middle of that life preserver. Not great, not great, you know, pretty, pretty slim. When we started the retreat, Gail began with the example that's more from our own time. 
You know, when we reflect on the vastness of the cosmos, there are, it's not billions of galaxies, there's trillions of galaxies. And there are way more stars than galaxies. Our own, our own galaxy has about 100 billion stars. So I don't know what 100 billion times several trillion is. It's a lot of zeros. And, you know, it's a huge, vast amount of stars. And so, of course, we also don't know how many planets are out there with all those stars. The astronomers are searching for what they call habitable planets, which means they're in just the right um, position vis-a-vis their star, you know, where they won't be too hot and they won't be too cold. There might be the possibility of water. Currently, we know of 53 that might be in that kind of space. We have no idea if there are any other conscious life forms out there. So far as we know, none, because we haven't met them yet. And it's probably fairly likely that there aren't many. And, of course, we are one of them. And even here on this planet, we are outnumbered. The bugs, there's way more bugs than there are people. Or you could think about all the life forms that inhabit your body. Your body, you are the world for many trillions of little life forms that move around in there. Um, And of course, if I have a few trillion, and Gil does, and you do, there's many, many trillions of those little bacteria and various things that are here in this room with us. Not only that, we're very recent. We came along in just this last tiny segment, segment of the four and a half billion years that the Earth has been around. We have no idea how long we're going to last or what we might evolve into next, because almost certainly, you know, I used to think we were at the end of the evolutionary chain. But, you know, that's, that's kind of naive, isn't it? It's quite likely that something else will happen next. So we're rare and we're precious, just as this says. And with all of that, it's even more rare and more precious to first to hear the Dharma, and then even more rare to get to practice it. We're very, very lucky. So you have to be, and you ha- it ha- you, we have to be just able to do it. We have to be in the habitable zone, if you will, in order to practice. So you have to have enough leisure, and you have to have the means. And, you know, here in California, I mean, there's so many opportunities to do so many different kinds of practice. You could probably do a different one every day for many, many years, and you wouldn't run out. But that's here, and it's not so true. It's not so true even where I live on, in Hawaii. And if you go to some of the more remote regions, even just staying in the Western Hemisphere, you know, way up on the northern reaches of Canada or Alaska, Um, Talk to some of those people about how wonderful it is to get to go to a retreat or to have a teacher come to them. It's very, very special. So Steve, to come back for him, he yearned for this opportunity to practice. It's like he'd seen enough in his life. And he knew that he needed and he wanted to be in a place where he could practice a lot. 
So he considered a number of different options, places to go where he might be able to serve. And fortunately for us, an opening happened here and he came to Spirit Rock as one of our caretakers. And again, those of you who might remember him, if there's anybody here, he, he always loved to be at the front gate on opening day because he didn't want any of you to get lost or confused. And he knew he could take care of you and he could tell you exactly where you needed to be and what you needed to do. And you know, he had a great smile. I kind of remember he'd always, you know, he'd just get this big grin when I saw him. He'd say, hello, darling. I was like, oh, I just, you know, you'd melt in his presence. It was really wonderful and an extraordinarily generous heart. He'd sit over there and he had a kind of a grayish shawl and a hat that he'd pull down over his head a lot. And he was here all the time. He sat and he sat and he sat. Anytime he could get away from his duties, he would come up and sit with us. He'd be here late at night. He'd be here early in the morning. It was pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, So, you know, again, people were just really inspired by the energy that he brought. And we know that that's amazing to have that opportunity. And there are so many who don't have the chance to practice, who are some who are caught in places of terrible suffering and violence, you know, who have no homes and no resources, and all they can do is try to survive, you know, keep their head above water, keep food on the table, you know, maybe some, probably not a lot, and no opportunity and no leisure, no leisure. You know, a week of retreat, that's a lot of leisure. And I know, just from talking to you, that many of you struggle just to get that week, you know, but you did it. We also know, it's interesting, that there are people who have plenty of wealth, plenty of ability to do this kind of practice, but have gotten so caught in that world of wealth and greed and indulgence and I'm not naming any names, but that sort of constant quest for more and more and more. So that becomes their consuming passion and they're not in the slightest interested in uh, finding about practice. And what seems to be true, because it's not that you're without suffering. I know, I know there's lots of suffering in this room. And, you know, it's not, but we're, we're in this right in kind of the sweet spot. You know, enough suffering to really push us toward practice and enough opportunity and leisure to be able to come. So this is, this is a foundational piece. And for you as you go out to remember how much of a gift it is to you to have the opportunity to practice so that that, that, that particular thought is what will also impel you along towards future practice. So then the next thought is the inevitability of death. So this is impermanence again. We've talked about impermanence a lot on this retreat. And, you know, this is the thought, this is what inspired the Buddha's own journey. You know, he, he'd been very protected from all forms of suffering and from impermanence. And then one day, as adolescents will, he got out. And when he got out into the marketplace and he saw someone was old, That looked pretty weird to him. And someone who was sick, he'd never seen anybody who was sick. 
And then he saw someone who was dead and he was completely bamboozled. What is this? What happened to this person? You know, and his charioteer who was with him said, well, you know, it happens to everybody. And the Buddha said, me too. And the charioteer said, yeah, you too. You know, these are called the heavenly messengers. You know, the heavenly messengers. And so we've noticed, you've noticed here this week, nothing stays the same, does it? Nothing at all. And now the retreat is dying. We talked in one of my groups this morning about how the retreat is now in hospice care. You know, so we're, we're getting ready to go. And it's, a, it's amazing for us. We don't, we somehow don't get it. You know, I'm at nearly 77. I'm almost done saying, if I die. But, you know, we say that, don't we? We say, if I die. It's not if, it's when. When I die. When I die. I even heard a song once when I was preparing a talk on impermanence. And the song, there was a line in the song that said, if I should ever die. It's like, hello, you know, you will. And there's an amazing practice you can do. And you can do this tomorrow. You can do this tomorrow. When you say goodbye to each other or to us, you can say goodbye forever. Goodbye forever. Because we don't know. I teach this often. And then somebody usually the next day comes up and says, goodbye forever. It's like, oh, you know. But it might be. Five years ago, at this particular retreat, actually, when I left, Steve drove me to the airport. And we got to the airport and we said goodbye. And we did not say goodbye forever. And I had a couple more conversations with him. He actually, a few weeks later, came to my house in Hawaii and and took care of it for a while for me. And it was goodbye forever. I never saw him alive again. And just a few weeks later in uh, early July, right after he'd been at my house, he had a stroke. And when they got him to the hospital and checked him out, they discovered that he had a really rare form of cancer that was everywhere in his body. And he died three weeks later. So we all have rude awakenings like this, right? Probably most of us in this room, something has happened. You know, it happens to a loved one. Happens to your friend like Steve. Or you go to the doctor thinking everything's just fine, it's routine. And he says, well, I have to tell you, or in my case, two weeks ago, two weeks ago today, I took a fall at the bottom of my stairs. I went flying into the air. I went crashing down on my back. We think I have a, a compression fracture back there. And everything changed in that moment. In that moment. The right angle turn or maybe even a U-turn. I don't know. You know. And so these are the heavenly messengers. We tend to treat them like they're bad news. You know, the bad news boys, maybe. But they're heavenly messengers. They're reminding us of this hugely important teaching. Now I look around the room. Some of you are young. But I said to somebody today, well, you know, it's a pretty pretty young retreat. And they they said, really? I don't see it that way. (laughs) A lot of gray in the room. And I realized that I'm now beginning to think of people who are born in the 60s as being young. But, you know, I'm beginning to get a little gray. So if you're 40, probably, you know, it's pretty close to half of your life is over. 
And if you're older than that, you know, it's probably not half left. And, you know, at 77, maybe I'll get 20 years, but I might not, you know. It might be 99.9% gone. And I might not make it back to my bed tonight. And you might not make it back to your bed tonight either. Because we don't know. We don't know. You know, think of all the people who went to work on 9-11. They just just went to work that day. And then that was the end. Or I was up on Mount Lassen once. All of a sudden there were all these helicopters flying around. Didn't know what happened. When we got down, we found that there'd been a family on the trail up near the top. And a piece of the trail, because it's heavily, heavily reinforced with rock and stuff, had broken loose and come down on them, and he died. He was just a kid. He was 10. He loved hiking in the outdoors. And he ate his Cheerios, and he went hiking that morning. And that was the end of his life. So sudden. So sudden. So it's really serious, this impermanence business. And really, the teaching is, don't waste time. Now sometimes, sometimes in the, I think it's in the Zen world that the saying comes from, practice like your hair is on fire. You know, really with that kind of intensity, because it is. You know, Jane Kenyon, who died very young of uh, leukemia, wrote a wonderful poem, and I'm just going to read you a few lines. She says, At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned for another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. So, you know, Steve practiced this way. He practiced with that kind of intensity. I don't think... think he, really, he didn't know he was ill. He didn't know he was dying. But he knew that he would. And he brought that kind of intensity over and over and over again. So notice. Now you can notice. Notice how your body is changing. Notice that it's shriveling or it bruises more easily or it gets tireder. You can do this in your everyday life. You can look around and notice things are impermanent. You are impermanent. But there's more. So the next one is the power of our actions. And this is really important as you go out because you've been in this kind of protected place. You haven't been doing a whole lot. And now you're headed back. You're headed back to your homes, to your partners, to your kids, dogs, cats, friends, colleagues at work, your aunties and your uncles and your grandparents and all of those people. And we all know, every one of us, how easy it is in our relationship world to just go barging in with whatever it is that is important to us and we sometimes are angry or pushy or grumpy and we leave in our wake people who are hurt and bewildered and can't be, what is wrong with her? What is wrong with her? You know, everyone in this room has been hurt by someone else, right? Everyone in this room has been hurt not only by the actions of someone else, but by their speech. Everyone in this room has hurt someone else with our actions. 
and everyone has spoken in a way that was unwise. This is the place we haven't escaped harm and we aren't innocent. And so then all these things happen and here we sit, you know, after countless hours of therapy and many, many retreats and those actions, ours or others, are still reverberating in us, right? Just like when this bell rings and it reverberates, reverberates. Think of that reverberation going on for whatever your age is, you know. It's still there. So it's so useful to begin to see that our actions are very, very powerful. That's why we took those precepts at the beginning of the retreat, you know, not harming, not taking what isn't offered, you know, not harming with our sexuality, not harming with our speech, and not harming with, by the use of drugs and alcohol. Very helpful for retreat. But you know, the challenge course is out there, is out ahead. There's a teaching that I like a lot that says, if you're in a boat and you're sailing out from San Francisco and you think, let's just say, you think you're headed to the Hawaiian Islands because after all, that's where everybody likes to go. If you change your course by even one degree, you might miss the islands entirely. So it doesn't take much, you know, to to be off or to be exactly on. And you know, I've thought so many times, I've had this experience, I have, I worked as a therapist for a number of years and people come back, you know, and I see them again many years later and they say, remember when you said, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I ever said that or not, but I apparently did and they remembered it and it made a difference. So, so our actions are very, very powerful and it's important to attend to them. When Steve got into those last weeks of his life, it was so wonderful to see this vast outpouring of love and caring that came toward him. It was very, very clear that his actions had been hugely important to many, many people. And when he died... I've never seen anything like it here at Spirit Rock, and I've been around for a long time. The place was just racked with grief. People were so sad. And, you know, his actions really inspired so many of us. And you know what? They might have supported you during this retreat because if you sat outside on that bench that's near the big bell, that bench is dedicated to Steve. So he holds us up even while we continue to practice here. So then the last thing is the enormity of suffering, of samsara itself. You know, this human life might be rare and it might be precious, but it doesn't seem to be easy. We don't get away without suffering. And so there's all the suffering that comes with having a body and with all of the problems and illnesses and old age and death and the suffering that comes just because nothing lasts ever and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing that's satisfactory for a long time, is there? You know, you get, you know, you get to the dining room, there's that chocolate cake the other night, right? You know, that chocolate cake with the whipped cream. 
Any of you skipped it because you were virtuous? You missed a good thing? But you know, you eat one piece of chocolate cake and that's really delicious and you think, oh, my wishes have been met. And you eat the second piece and it's pretty good. But, and then you eat the third piece and after a while you begin to go, you know, this is not good. It doesn't stay yummy. It doesn't stay yummy. And of course, we have enormous suffering, as I know you've seen this week, when we struggle with the way things are, when we want them to be different. Not only that, I mean, there's so much pain on this planet. You know, if you just you know, bring up the news on your computer or whatever you do, or you read the newspaper, turn the TV on, it's endless, you know, all of the insanity and the injustice and the racism and the devastated environment and the, you know, it just goes on and on and on. It's everywhere and it's unavoidable. It's part of being here. And, you know, Steve knew that. He'd had plenty of suffering in his life, you know, all the substance use, all of the failed relationships. He'd had a tough life. You know, you could see it in him. And the Buddha knew that that's how it is here. And he came and he taught what he taught because he wanted for beings to not suffer. He wanted all beings to be happy. Isn't that wonderful? He wanted all beings to be happy. And so he was teaching, you know, those many, many years of teaching until he died when he was 80 because he did die about how not to suffer. And as my friend Sylvia likes to say, you know, that third noble truth that there can be an ending of suffering, she says, well, maybe there's a third and a half noble truth. If not a complete ending of suffering, at least less. And I would say, probably all of us sitting up here in front would say, yeah, there's less suffering since we've done this practice. We've really learned that we don't have to hold on to all of the things that we've hold, held on to in the past and that we can come to a place of more ease. And you know, in the face of all that suffering, what else are you going to do other than practice? You know, you got, we, it seems like we have to practice. It seems to be, as one person said, the only way to deal with the serious and unusual problem of having a human life. You know, so we go right into the suffering, we try to see deeply into it and to find some ease in that way. Denial and avoidance doesn't work. It doesn't work. So that's what you've done all week. You've gone deeply into whatever your moment-to-moment experience is, exploring what is there, what is this thing, the way that it is, you know. And so we find that when we do that, you know, this, this very body, as Hakuin said, this very body is the body of the Buddha. This is the place where we find our awakening. So we really begin to see what it is to be alive. And maybe that's enough. So another story that seems so appropriate for going home and living an ordinary life. So three monks were on and along the way they met a woman who had a tea shop. So the woman prepared a pot of tea for them, you know, and she brought three cups and set them out and she said to them, O monks, 
Let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. Well, this is the challenge because if you're a monk, you're not supposed to talk about these things anyway. And you certainly, you know, you don't. uh, So the three of them kind of looked at each other and nothing happened. And then the woman said, watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. Then she picked up the cups, poured the tea and left. So that's, you know, just being here, just being alive. That's the miracle. The very ordinary is quite miraculous. And in your everyday life, as you pour tea, as you wash dishes, as you pat the dog, as you embrace your beloved, those are the moments where when you are present, you practice. Steve was very ordinary. He was such an ordinary. He was a guy's guy, you know. He was just so ordinary. He knew a great deal of suffering. And he practiced as though his hair was on fire. And he knew a great deal of love. And he left way too soon. Way too soon. You know, and his actions, I mean, here I am. I'm still talking about him. You know, five years later, I don't know how many Dharma talks I've done with Steve in the middle of them, but I always enjoy doing them. And so he would say to you, he would say, remember, it's precious, it's short. Actions count. There can be an end to this enormous suffering. So when he passed one of our other staff members wrote this poem. So this is the second obituary. He says, the the author is a man by the name of Jim Bates. He said, rarely do we meet this sort of person and doing so can be disconcerting for they hold nothing back and in their eyes we may glimpse something which we may yet hide. For most of us, the way through the thorns and the brambles is a bit of snipping and pruning, guided by the hope of some future salvation, fearing our own bleeding. He, however, pulled the sword from the rock to leave his thickets in shambles, to hew from his life. To hew from his life a light made of sparks of sword upon stone that lit a path back to the beginning and all the way through past the end where the sword could be laid in the nest made of the soft, fine fibers of his labor, leaving only vast, open, pulsing love. (laughs) I didn't expect that. Thank you for listening. Let's sit just where you are. No need to move and breathe together for a moment. So thank you very much for your presence here at the retreat and for your practice. 
May you all go home and continue practicing as though your hair is on fire. So I think now we're going to chant or led by Heather. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.